In this episode, we're joined by Bailey Beacon. You have created a senior care marketing community years before it was a thing. You really were, uh, or are, I should say, a pioneer in the space. So I've been doing conferences for almost 35 years, conferences, trade shows, any kind of um, larger, what we call business to business event or B2B event. Conferences are a build. It's about trust. You know, it's really about what these folks do with organizations. You know, they have to trust us. They have to trust that we listen to what they need, that that we're going to deliver what I would want to go to. I would want a free flowing, easy to be in, talk to everybody, not have any of the labels, no different color lanyards, none of that. I just want wanted people to be able to talk to people. Welcome to the Canopy IQ podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Bailey Beacon. Bailey is the president of Validated Learnings, LLC, and managing director of Smash HMP Global. Smash is the go-to senior care marketing sales summit taking place annually in Las Vegas and has become a can't-miss gathering. Hello, Bailey. It is great to have you on the podcast. You have been on the uh, my list of must-haves for a long time, so I appreciate having you here. I wanted to see how things are going. How's life in New York right now? Uh, it's great. First of all, Adam, thank you so much for asking me. I'm honored. Um, um, so thank you. Uh, life in the Bronx right now is fine. However, we have a lot of Canadian um, smog. So, and I'm headed up there tomorrow to the part of Canada that has no smog, which is Ontario. It's all up in Ottawa and somehow it's missed that part of Canada. It just comes down to New York and the Midwest. So that's right now where we've got a lot of smog. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing it uh, here all the way in Asheville, North Carolina. And I was recently in New York. You could see it there too, but what a great city you live in. I just, I love it there. It is the best. It is the greatest city in the world. So I stay. <laughs> Good for you. Um, well, next time I'm up there, I'm going to say hello in person. So Absolutely. I, wanted to, I wanted to jump right into, you know, sort of where you've evolved in your in your career. I mean, it's not an exaggeration or, or an understatement to say that um, you have created a senior care marketing community years before it was a thing. And now, of course, you know, you hear senior care marketing and sales and innovation and so forth. But you really were, uh, or are, I should say, a pioneer in the space. So this is a two-part question. I know from our previous conversation, you had to tackle and surmount quite a few obstacles to get where you are now. And you've had this, what I would call fascinating career arc. And the second part of that question is somewhat related. And that is, what advice would you share with fellow marketers who are working in senior care? There has been a huge influx of new blood in the community. I think a lot of younger marketers who have pivoted and really embarked on this uh, this sort of new frontier that is senior care. Okay, so two part question. The first part question, I think, um, actually leads to smash in an odd and nonlinear kind of way. Um, and it really uh, doesn't involve having thought of myself as being a sales or marketer. Matter of fact, if anything, I wanted to be the polar opposite of that. I wanted to be like an operation. So I'm a conference producer first and a um, topic expert, as it were, second. And so I've been doing conferences for almost 35 years, conferences, trade shows, any kind of um, larger, what we call business to business event or B2B event. And in that, um, but it started with, um, I got a job, uh, it, I was, can't say out of college cause I didn't graduate college. Um, took some classes so I could put it on my, whatever resume back then they didn't have computers so no one could check. Um, yeah. but I got a job producing concerts in New York city with an old, like, it was, was old style long when like distribution companies and records and record companies were big. I actually have a gold record I could show you. Um, and that's really a well, gold records are given out for as sales awards, by the way, just so you know, people go, Oh my God, a gold record. It's just if, if an album sells X amount and you are involved in any way, you get a gold record. So, um, I, I heard somebody who heard somebody that they needed an office, you know, assistant, and it was just two old guys who were being backed by a re- old record distributor who had a ton of money. And one had been a manager of talent, um, in, in 
at one time and the other was the money guy. And it no. was Eugene Slutsky and Cy Flicks. And <laughs> uh, they gave me a desk uh, in this in that old uh, Fisk building, which is it was a big music building at the time where a lot of the management, um, you know, managers and things and, and rights, you know, licensing and copyrights. Um, and so I started there. I had no idea what I was doing. And a friend's father actually said to me, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to take this job. It's like my first real job outside of waitressing and bartending and all the things that I did before that. And I am going to write the book, Everything I Ever Needed to Know About Business. I learned waitressing, just so you know. Um, and he, I said, he, I said, I don't know if I'm going to do it. He said, can you do 10% of the job? I said, yeah, I can do 10%. He said, if you can do 10% of any job, you can take the job. So I start and, um, you know, pretty quickly, I, they just handed everything to me and I was feel very, very lucky. They, they did mainly uh, black R and B jazz artists in 2,500 to 5,000 seat auditoriums. And, um, so I started doing P and L's and we advertised in the old fashioned way. It was radio and newspapers. And, um, it was a great, it was my first really great learning experience in, in managing, people and advertising and marketing for, to, you know, get consumers to do something, anything. And, um, the way that that, uh, job ended a couple of years later, and I learned to deal with unions and all the things that I kind of do now in a, in a different, in, you know, obviously in a different format through trade shows. And I remember asking the sound guys during sound check, you know, what do you do to make a living? Like this can't be the only thing you do. And they were like, no, no, we all do trade shows. That's what we do. We go to the trade shows and that's where we make our real money. But you know, this is, this is what we love to do. So, um, but it ended one day we had bought, um, you pre-bought advertising on radio back in the day. And you would buy 20,000, 30,000. There's a lot of money back in the years you were talking about, right? And uh, it was a jazz and R&B station and we bought $30,000 or something of advertising. We've been doing it for a couple of years and you'd buy it through a broker. And the I wake up one day and I go to the office, I turn on the radio and it's a country Western station. And they don't give you your money back. And that was the end of that company. <laughs> So, because they don't give you your money back. And that was basically our whole nut. So it was, it was really interesting. You know, I did everything, as I said, from PL to, you know, working with the union, making sure everything was correct, sound, ordering everything. I was even the bag man because all those guys weren't paid in anything but cash back then. They'd been screwed too many times. So I had to go up to like Harlem at 120. They'd send me up on the subway. Like I was like, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, I remember. And they, you know, somebody need $20,000 and you'd get they, the, you know, big John up at 125th street, they give you a paper bag with the money in it. And you'd have to bring it back the next day with the interest. I didn't think or the Blarney stones were all, uh, you know, these loan sharks who knew, I don't know if anyone in New York city knows the Blarney stones, but they were all over New York and they were like bars that served, you know, corned beef and cabbage and, you know, beer, and so I did that, you know, so I, I had a lot of those kinds of experiences. So anyway, long story short, I ended up somehow waitressing. Somebody asked me to be a badge typist at an association for motion picture and television engineers. And I learned this part of the business. And, um, you know, I just, I just really loved it. I like, I, I loved it even when I was doing concerts, you know, the idea in marketing and sales of trying to figure out who your customer is how to reach them. What do they need to hear? What do they want to hear to be able to make the revenue you need to, to keep the business going. And so I really stayed in that vein as I, when I got to, into the conference side and uh, trade show side, I thought I like wanted to do operations. As I said, I was like, Ugh, sales and marketing, nothing. I don't want to do that. Especially sales. I hadn't done that. Um, and I said, you know, operations has a lot of control. Um, you know, you can order, everybody around. Um, but I moved out of that fairly quickly. I uh, walked away from that job and got another job in, uh, I think in selling computers when they first started. I don't know for some guy, like I've, <laughs> I really just, New York stories. I have, I could just say that I kept moving for money. I, I, I wish I could tell you, I had some passion in something I didn't. I was like, I need more money. I got to go. <laughs> Do I, what can I do? Can I do 10% of the job? So, um, so anyway, I, uh, started with another, so I was, I was selling these computer or some kind of computer software or something. I mean, this was back like when computers were just big boxes, right? I don't know if it was whatever. And 
a, a guy from another trade show company said, oh, I want a demonstration. So I said, oh, okay. And it was this tiny office in the Empire, Empire State Building or I don't know, MetLife Building or someone with his dad in the office. So he came up and I gave a demonstration and he was like, I want you on my sales team. And I thought, well, I said, well, how much am I going to make? <laughs> And it was more than I was making. And I was like, done, you know, I'll come on over next week. And within a month or two months, I was making more than any of my friends. You know, because I was like, I'm not going to sell. I don't want to sell, but it's more money. So there I go. And um, I really loved it. I dove right in. And back there, we had had Cheshire cards for calling and mailing. And, um, you know, like we didn't really have computers. They were just coming around into word processors, not certainly had any CRM systems. So, but I, I fell into sales and, and through that job actually was thrown into sales and marketing big time. And, um, my specialty became by default and not by design launch new launch. And uh, there were a lot of smaller companies back then. So you had your hands in everything and you, had access to the New York public library on 42nd street was where I lived. I would go to all the business magazines and look to see if everyone had a trade show, if there was any, uh, you know, what we would call today blue ocean where there might be an industry, you know, some, some segment that maybe I'm not thinking about. And, um, as I said, I spent a lot of hours in there in Bryant park and, um, you know, I was there for a number of years and launched, bunch of stuff, Unix Expo and Accountants World and restaurant hotel design. You, you, you call it our National Aardvark Association, like <laughs> whatevs. I didn't care as long as I was, you know, being compensated. And, uh, and I really loved it. You know, I really loved getting to know an industry, getting to know the people in it. Um, not every industry was the same in that way, but, you know, the closer I could get to the people in the industry, the better I liked the, the, whatever I had created. So I learned that about myself and about the work that I did. And, you know, I I won't say that I knew that I was passionate about that, but I knew that those were, those were the kinds of events and trade shows at that time, trade shows were much bigger than they are now, um, that I liked to be involved in. So I eventually moved around a little bit and then got fired summarily from one job summarily. I mean, like to the point where the guy said, I could not manage a trade show out of a paper bag. We're not going to give you unemployment. Like, you know, he had given me a, a, here's one thing you learn as you're growing up is never, don't ask what the job is. And do you have the resources for it? Right. Had a crazy, you know, list of things to do, a list of shows and no resources. And I didn't know it until I was in it, but I, whatever I fought, I got unemployment. I left and I, but I was broke. And so I started waitressing again because that was like the fail safe. I always had that or bartending. There. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, um, good cash job. And I saw, you know, I kept looking always at, and I, and it was usually through reading an article or something that caught my attention. And in the times, New York times, there was this article about miniature golf courses and it said there were 10,000 in the country. So I'm looking all around and now computers are there and you're, you know, there's internet a little bit and I'm not, I'm like, wow, there's no shows for miniature golf courses. How could that be? So it turns out there were only 1,000 in the country. They had a typo. But at that moment in time, talking, we just talked about timing being all right in business. I had a skill set, but timing is really important. Um, these things called family fun centers, which are these small ball call, crawl courts, you know, back then they were exploding all over the U S along with many, you know, they would have miniature golf and just, they were teeny tiny amusement parks and nobody was doing anything for them. And the big association really didn't really didn't like, you know, the ones for Disney and six flags, they were like, no, we don't really want those guys. And it turned into, so I started that business. I found some backers and, um, because by that time, some people knew me and most people, I was 28, people patted me on the head and were like, oh, aren't you cute? You want to, you know, yeah, it's some money. But I found a guy who knew me really well, uh, didn't like me in particular, but he was like, this is a great business plan. I'm in. And he found two other people with some money and we did the um, fun expo, the family fun, uh, the uh, miniature golf and family entertainment show, but the acronym was fun expo. And, uh, I, I talk about that show because for me, that show, not only was it my first company, but it was an industry that is very much like senior living. 
uh, it is probably the closest, believe it or not, in terms of passion, in terms of serving the customer. I mean, people who were in that industry, their primary purpose was to provide uh, fun and to provide uh, happiness. You know, they really like that was their focus. It wasn't about the, you know, the rise. I mean, all that stuff was ancillary, but their mission was to provide happiness, you know, and um, what a mission. Right. And so I got to know everybody and their brother and their dog and like that. That was just the kind of event that really I, I got excited about. And, and it turned into about a thousand booths and 10,000 people and eventually sold it after about 10 years. So that was, you know, that was a great experience. Um, having the backers that I had, they were wonderful mentors, pains in the ass, but wonderful, wonderful mentors. And, um, you know, really taught me what I needed to know about how to run a, a business on my own and, um, outside of just the skill set, you know, which I had at that point. And then, you know, I moved around, you know, I went from corporation to corporation doing, other people's shows, uh, or what they wanted to launch again, my specialty, um, and had both very good and very bad experiences with corporate America and, uh, never really, never really felt like it, it you know, I always, I never felt after owning a company that I was an employee again, you know, like I, I had that just, I was a, if you want to, I mean, I guess they don't run around if people don't use it, but an entrepreneur, you know, like I just, I did not feel like an employee. I felt like if you gave me a project, I owned it and I was going to deliver for you. And actually, I I, I mean, not to be to whatever, open the kimono, but everything I did, I based on my compensation was always based on what I could deliver. And I found that to be a really good formula for me in particular and it being a woman at that time. Like yeah. if I had just waited for salary, I was going to be making 75 cents on the dollar. And I knew that if I bet on myself, I was probably going to be making more. So I bet on myself a lot. Um, and so I eventually found myself, I started another business for, I love acronyms. So do you'll know why I got to smash eventually um, the forensic science and crime scene technology show. And uh, it was called frenzy. That was the acronym. And so <laughs> we did pretty well with that show uh, through the national, uh, through the NIJ, the National Institute of Justice. They funded it. Uh, we, we went to them and we didn't think we'd get funding, but we got a lot of funding because the individual first responders, uh, you know, everything from the CIA to um, I, I met the guy who found Ted Kaczynski. I mean, you know, um, Secret Service, small police departments, the NIJ funded it all. So and then 9-11 happened. We were just about to sell that company and 9-11 happened and all the money that was at NIJ went over to Homeland Security. And so that was the end of that company. And then um, then I at the end of my corporate career, which was after that, I went back into corporate America. I worked on a show for reality TV called Reality Rocks. And that was the end of my life in corporate America. I It was a business to consumer event, which is something I was not used to. It was going to all of the... Um, all of the streamers and everyone who was doing then reality TV. And they were trying to develop a show. This is at the very beginning, going back to marketing and sales, very, very beginning. Like websites were around, but digital marketing of any kind was so in its nascent stage. Like there was no rhyme or reason. And you were just trying to get out there somewhere on the World Wide Web. And so they were convinced that this was going to work. And one of the things I'd learned in launching was that it takes about six to eight weeks to figure out the lay of the land, like what, how, who buys, who sells, who, you know, how, how, what's the mindset of the consumer? Who are you going out to? And I very quickly learned that reality and what they call docu and factual in industry. Um, if you liked hoarders and I liked better burgers and somebody else liked Survivor, actually they had nothing whatsoever to do with one another. So there was no way to market just reality TV. And so I kept going to them and they had a budget, a big budget, fairly big. And I would say, can you, you just need to cancel this. You just have to cancel it. It's not going to work. There's no way to make this work. There's no way to read. There's just, and they thought also that the TV or the channels and streaming owned the talent somehow like old Hollywood and it didn't. And so the talent 
was really expensive. And so I just kept going to the, to the CEO and going, it's, it's, I, I want to make it work, but I'm, I can't, it's, I, it's, it's an impossible job. So, um, he just, I don't even, let me just say his nickname was mad dog. I don't have to tell you what he would say to me, but I'm just going to, I don't even remember his name. Everyone called him mad dog. He was insane an East Ender from London and totally insane. And, um, they didn't cancel. But at the end, right near the end, I was like, I cannot, I cannot ever do another show that is so removed from anything I believe in. And I didn't, I wasn't against reality TV. I like everyone else had my little favorites, but like, you know, Housewives of New York, excellent. But I just, I just was like, I can't be handed something again. And I, and I thought I don't, I was of an age where I was like, I don't want to work. I don't want to work in computers where I'm working with 28 year old somethings anymore. That's not going to work for me. And I saw this little ad for something in senior housing. And it was with uh, Lincoln Healthcare, which does wonderful events for CEOs in the industry and small conferences. And it was a way step back for me in terms of the title, um, and took 11 interviews to get the job. Um, but I thought this is an industry I can grow in. I don't know any much about it, except my parents had been through the continuum of care. And, um, but I'm, I feel, I just felt it, you know, and I got into it and I felt immediately in love with it. And the job was to launch something in senior living. And I launched senior living 100 and I worked in home health 100 and these other, you know, all the arenas across the continuum for a couple of years, three years or so. And what I saw in working with the CEOs and doing conferences for them was I would always do, because my heart is in sales and marketing. As I said, every job that I had, and you know, again, everything I needed to know, I learned waitressing, sales and marketing. Let's just go. You know, <laughs> like you got to know what the customer wants and you not have to know how to sell it to them, right? So on a very basic level. Um and uh, I loved it. I loved the people. As I said, it really reminded me of Fun Expo, that they had a mission. They that it, The mission was their customer. And it wasn't the, you know, I mean, everyone's got corporate profits and quarterly dividends and all that. But at the end of the day, the people who sit in these seats, who come to Smash, are thinking about the customer all the time. Whether it's to come in, whether it's the right fit, whether it's, um, you know, how to get them to understand what's right about their organization for the for the individual. It's really a passion sell. And um, so I would talk to CEOs that were going to Lincoln Healthcare and I would do a sales and marketing session. It'd always be packed out the door, you know, because they wanted to know how how to get that revenue and get that census, you know, and I could see them walking out and I was like, this isn't getting to anybody underneath them. They're just, you know, that's not, it's not gonna happen. So I went to the owner of Lincoln and I said, I have this idea. I think there's a whole secondary part of the C-suite that could build, help build the business. And he said, I'm not really interested. I really want CEOs. And, you know, that's what I like to do. That's, that's where my business is. So I went out on my own and, um, had no idea. It was the kind of still in the middle of the recession. Um, it was right at the beginning when digital marketing was finally, finally something and CRMs were something they, you know, HubSpot had just come out. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and there were ways to get digital ads on Facebook. Like, like that was so nascent, but it was, it was starting, there was really, it's starting to be a there, there. And I thought, you know, this is going to revolutionize whatever industry, but it's certainly going to revolutionize this, every industry, this industry, and, and none of us know anything about it. And what really convinced me was, um, again, the six to eight week, I was just good at, you know, looking at that stuff is I went to a larger conference, um, for, uh, heads of like Amex and soft, uh, you know, big airlines, Apple, you name it for marketing. And it was a day long conference. It was like really expensive. And, um, they had a lot of panels and the panelists, like, at every point during this day where you would think these were the people who knew the most about everything. They had the biggest budgets. They had everything at their disposal and people would essentially be going, I don't know what we're doing. We have no idea. We're just throwing money against it. We don't know. It's great. We know it's there. It's like AI right now, like in a way, right? Like we know it's going to work. We know something's going to happen with it. We're just going to throw money at it. And so when I heard that, I was like, you know, you know, people, when I first started Smash, the Senior Care Marketing and Sales Summit, um, 
people, a lot of the organizations that we both work with would say, oh, we're so behind the curve. And I'd be like, no, you're not. I just heard AMX last week. They have no idea what they're doing. We're not banning. We're behind the curve. <laughs> they're, we're just starting the curve. So come on down for the ride, you know? And so, you know, I, I already knew a number of people, particularly CEOs. And I went to them first and I said, would you encourage your marketer, your, your head of sales and marketing to come to something like this? And they were like, yeah. And what I then quickly realized from a conference standpoint, there weren't that many sponsors. And that's always part of the weighing of, you know, because we need both to financially make it work. Um, but there, I, I, I'm going to throw props out to Sage Age, who at that point was run by Faith. Um, and uh, she came in big and um, she was like, we need this we need this. And she was always a supporter and, um, just a, a brilliant woman. And, uh, it's a great company and, and, you know, not to not promote anybody's company, but just to her belief in, in the market that this was going to be a, a real sea change time, uh, was great. And we had a number of other people, but it was still small. You know I mean? Not everybody was advertising in it. People just didn't know and see her. Like, again, everyone was just starting with everything, but the marketers, and we started mostly with marketers. We had a hundred people, I think, the first year. We're up to about five hundred now, and ten years later, um, and we cap it so it's it could be somewhat larger. A um, uh, hundred people believed in it, you know. And um, I remember <laughs> my favorite line was, "I I had developed a board because I needed to know what was important to them. I didn't. I don't run." senior care, senior living organizations. I really rely on them. The best board in the world, best, best. And um, a guy named Bob Weirden, who at that time was with Presbyterian Homes, I had recruited this board and they were very helpful in developing ideas and all that. And so we get after the show together and I'm like, okay, so let's do the first five minutes. How'd it go? And Bob Weirden said, thank you for not embarrassing us. And I thought I hit the bar. It's good. It didn't, excuse me, it, it didn't, I would use another word, What it didn't, terrible, but the word <laughs> yes, it didn't suck. <laughs> that's all I needed to know. That was, that's always the highest praise I usually give everything, you know, to say, you know, thank you for not embarrassing us. So I knew I had something at that point. And, uh, you know, it, conferences are a build. It's about trust. You know, it's really about what these folks do with organizations. You know, they have to know, us, me, Peggy, Regina, they have to trust us. They have to trust that we listen to what they need, that, that we're going to deliver. Sometimes we deliver stuff that works, sometimes it doesn't, but they're always involved in the process. That, especially on the solution partner side, we learned a lot about doing a conference versus trying to put together a show, you know, a, some kind of trade show situation. I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be much more. I had, after all these years, I really had in my head what I would want to go to. I would want a free flowing, easy to be in, talk to everybody, not have any of the labels, like the no labels show, you know, no different color lanyards, none of that. I just wanted people to be able to talk to people. And so we developed the ratio idea, which I had kind of stolen from Lincoln, but really developed that to make sure that no one was overwhelmed on either side or with their competitors. And you know, it's been a wonderful journey and the people that I've met have been great. And I've made many friends, uh, in this industry. And, um, again, it's, it's an industry that sells with a passion that has a real mission. And, um, that's the story of smash. Yeah. So how did the uh, HMP, uh, sale go through? What, what's the story behind that? Is this that was really out of the blue. So the pandemic happens, and um, nobody could go live. We all went virtual. It was awful mm -hmm. for everyone. Every single, you know, like I think the best, the attendees all got something out of it, but they were doing so many of them. There was fatigue in that as well. Um, and uh, so I was convinced, you know, I build to sell eventually. I mean, I, you know, that I didn't really have a time. I did kind of have a timeline, but not really anything too specific, but at the pandemic point, I was facing 
um, as all of us were in this industry, we contract very early on for uh, the hotels and that's a lot of money and they have ironclad contracts and even in the face of a pandemic. And so I was really looking down the barrel of a very, very large amount of money and personal money at that point. And, um, and I'm no spring chicken. And I was like, you know what? I, I, if I, I, if I could, I would sell more, not to reap an enormous amount of whatever, because I did have partners and they owned a great deal of the, of the equity of the company. Cause I've never gone into anything without other people's money. I just don't, you know, didn't have it myself. And also I wanted a back end. I didn't want to, I just wanted to be in the industry. I didn't want finance and accounting and tech and all that. So I had great partners, a company called McGregor communications from up in Canada, a fellow I'd known for years yeah. and they took a chance, you know, as everyone has. And, um, so that really, um, that experience, I did get out of that contract slowly, but surely like I found a specialty lawyer who says, you know, don't, you're not a kid. This is going to take nine months. You're just going to have to live with the fear of this for that long. Mm-hmm. I promise I will whittle it away or as much as I can promise I I'm the guy. And he was, and he didn't even want to take me as a client because he only worked with really big companies. And as I am on, we, I say, I put my teeth in people's ankle until until they bleed. I just kept calling him and saying, I need you. Like I, I have to have you. You're a great guy. And, you know, I made him laugh a couple of times and finally he said, yes. And, um, and he got me out of the contract, but at that point I was like, okay, when and if, but I, at that point I also said, no one will ever buy conferences again. This is now it's over. Like this pandemic has shown that there is something that can really recessions. We'd all been through all of it, but this, yeah for face to face was it was over so out of the blue the following year after coming out of the pandemic after our 2021 event out of the blue HMP which is predominantly they do over 230 conferences in uh, medical education credits which is a very different part of the industry it's very regulated it's not fun like at all it's all docs and uh you know um which is fine and it's a very lucrative part of our industry i did some of it way back um it was not i didn't particularly like i didn't like working with the pharma companies that much um but uh they came approach us they had just bought argentum the argentum trade not argentum the association but the argentum trade show and they asked a couple of exhibitors we want to build a portfolio around senior housing. You know, they had also bought a big portfolio around behavioral health. They wanted to get out of the, the cre- accreditation or expand out of accreditation. And, um, so everyone said smash. Wow. So they approached us and it w- it made sense for us. And, and again, it was much for me, it was like, I just can't take that kind of risk ever again right, for sure. me. So that was, that was the agent P and they've been great. They said, we won't bother you. And they haven't bothered us. And they came to the show last year for the first time. And they were like, they couldn't believe that this little engine that could was got even bigger. Right. Like they were like, Oh my God. Cause they didn't really talk to us. They, Bob was the bigger shareholder of Bob McGregor. And so mano y mano, they were, I didn't care. I had, you know, whatever. I'd done a lot of M and A at my time, but I was like, Bob, you, you take it. And, um, and so they didn't talk to the team, Peggy, me, or Regina, really, except right before they got it. And there we were, like, just chugging away, chugging away, doing our thing. And they were like, what's the magic? Like, you guys have magic. Feels like a compliment. I didn't want to tell them that the magic is actually the people who come to Smash. And I really mean that. Like, it is a fun they want to learn. They want to talk to each other. It You've been there, Adam. It's just yeah. like a mosh pit of yeah, information it. and fun and people are relaxed and they're finally able to let their hair down and talk to each other about this difficult sale. This is unlike anything else. It just period. Like people have said that about other industries. I'm telling you, this is it. Right. So, um, that's the magic. And I didn't want to tell them. I wanted them to think I'm really important and really good at what I do. But the magic is the people. Oh, you're very humble. You're very humble. No, it's not. You know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm not humble. I mean, yes, we create an environment that helps sustain that and to encourage it. Like when they saw me buying 
finger puppets and little baseballs to throw around or whatever. I mean, that's my favorite part of every year is going online and saying, what are the, you know, the, the giveaways that I can, you know, like just for fun. So people can sit at tables and work with pipe cleaners and stuff, um, scrabble tiles. And, uh, they were like, is this in the budget? Like, what is this? And I said, everything we do gets people talking to each other. That's all they really want to do. And once they do that, they've had a great show. You know, the education they love. But outside of that, it's really just talking to each other. So, yes, we do create that environment. I'll give myself that credit. But really, it's people who come. Well, you ought to, because as you mentioned a few minutes ago, I really love uh, Smash. We've been doing it a few years now, and I'm really excited for October. I've always enjoyed the intimacy of that event. Man, you took me back to just memory lane in the 90s. And remember Booth Babes? Remember when that was a thing? Oh, Booth Babes. I got to tell you really quick. I'm so sorry because I know you want to talk. But not at all. Not at all. Selling, selling my first show Fun Expo, we actually had a line item in the budget for bands and babes. I kid <laughs> you not. And when they were doing due diligence, they were like, hmm. band and babes? What would that be? <laughs> but Booth Babes. Do How the times that. have changed. <laughs> well, oh, yes, they have. However, they were effective at the time. What can I say? Yeah, it was, it was a moment in time. I finally understand why you call yourself an event evangelist and a relationship alchemist. Really love that. I wish I'd thought of it. I'm going to steal it when you're not looking. <laughs> so I wanted to um, touch on generative AI, right? It's. Sure taking every industry by storm. I mean, like everybody, you know, you fire up your inbox every morning and you've been carpet bombed with emails about, you know, the revolution in in generative AI and large language models and so forth. But I think for us in this industry, it is really exhilarating. I, I find it fascinating. I'm excited by it. But I'm also, you know, in awe of where it's taking us because it is some respects, a mystery, um, but I, we're going to go into hyperdrive mode. And just curious to hear, you know, what, what's your perspective on how it's going to impact the industry, at least at a very high level on the marketing side, if you will? I, there's part of me that says it, it, it's going to revolutionize a lot of stuff outside of marketing, inside yeah. of marketing, I guess. But I read an article in the New York Times, right? First of all, I signed up right away. I have it up open all the time. I use it for everything. Everything from like, what should I eat that day to stay on my diet to recreating a marketing plan, like everything. And sometimes it's really great. And sometimes it is micro dosing on a daily basis. So it does hallucinate a little, Um, you know, that behavioral health thing is going on there. Um, But so the article in the New York times talked about, it was in particular with legal and that AI was really going to hit the legal industry very hard and was going to take lawyers out. And, um, it's like when accountants first, what was the first accounting software before Excel? I forget what it was called. Um, Oh, I'll remember it. No talent for memory, but, um, it, it came out and it was the first time you could use an Excel like document. And, um, everyone said accounting's going away. And accounting is as big as it ever was. Okay. So because at the end of the day, you still need um, learning language AI. It cannot, um, it cannot come up with an idea. It can only help you make an idea clearer. Um, And then at this point now, general AI is going to be a whole, that's going to like, could blow the world up. I don't know. It's so scary to me that I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an avid voracious reader of everything. And I love the idea of AI. I, I use it all the time now. And, um, I think what it'll do for marketing at the moment, um, is as people learn to use it better, it will make people's jobs a little faster, which will leave them more time for strategy. But going back to the legal, what they said, because I don't want to forget that thought, they said the lawyers who learn to adopt and use AI are going to stay lawyers. The ones that don't are going to go because there's no, you can't put the, you can't put, I was just uh, in the board meeting on something I belonged to the other day. And they were like, Oh my God, AI. I was like the genie's out of the bottle. 
Like you can hate it. You can not believe in it. You can do a lot of things, but that genie is out of the bottle. So you better figure out for yourself where it's going to fit into your world because there's no putting the plug back. Right. So, you know, I think for a marketer, so it's, what it's going to do is it's going to free up people to think, you know, they're like, Oh, it's going to, you know, kids aren't going to learn how to write and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, why don't you, you know, there was a teacher in the room and I said, it doesn't have to be that way. What you can say is, of course, you're going to use AI and it's going to, and it's going to source where it found things. First of all, you have to check if it's hallucinating because I'm going to find out if, if you didn't check, but secondarily, like find a way to make that a learning experience for the kids instead of saying, oh my God, everyone's cheating. Like there are, you know, whatever has to happen, there will be ways to make it so people can still think. And I just think it's going to free up some good strategic thinking time because in our industry, you know, I love the description somebody once gave me a couple of years ago of a marketer. I get in at eight o'clock, the activities director's not showing up. I've got to order three buses. I have collateral, you know, traditional collateral piece that has to get out in the mail that day. And I've got to check it and everything else. And then something else happens at the community where I got to go, one of the communities, I got to drive down two hours to go help out there. And then I've got two sales tours and I've got an in-home visit. And like, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, how, how do you get any work done ever? you know, to find residents. And that's why most of our clients, and I won't say that's why, but there's no um, upside for them making bigger marketing departments. It'll just make more people doing things that aren't marketing, right? So they use multiple agencies. But I think the frustration for our providers is that they don't, and why they come to smash is to be able to be able to get enough information to strategize correctly with their agency. So I think that'll free that up a little bit. And then on the agency side, I would guess, and you can say better than me, copywriting has always been, I have had to copyright my whole career and I hate it. Like literally I hate it. And I am a very good copywriter at this point because I've had to do it. And nobody, and the reason I, haven't been able to give it over because I do a lot of email copywriting. I mean, that's how you sell conferences and more than anything and brochures and things like that in the older days. Um, I couldn't find somebody who could write quickly enough and in my voice or the voice of the industry, it was much easier for me to do it in my head. Now prompting my friend, I've asked her if I can call her chatty and she said, it would be my honor. How can I help you? Um, so I say, hi, Chatty. <laughs> um, is that I think for, for again, copywriting for agencies is a, is a very time consuming. It's a high cost item, even when I've had to go get blogs done or whatever. And a lot of, a lot of people are like, why don't you do stuff year round? It's because I didn't have the writers to be right. able to do that. Right. So, um, I think what it'll do is it'll free up, you know, yes, there'll be a couple of copywriters who will either refuse to use it or not learn how to use it properly, like learn how to do prompts correctly. But for those who learn to use it and use it well, it's going to help every single agency deliver more to their clients in a more cost-effective way for both themselves and their clients. And it will have start to have a consistent voice and a consistent message because it's language learning. This isn't like a person sitting behind chatty, although I call her chatty. It's just a language learner. It's an algorithm. It's, you know, so I think I, I see a lot of positives and where I see the negatives are people who either cannot or will not adapt to it. I don't know. What do you think? No, I'm with you. I thought that was an excellent summary. I mean, you know, it's unavoidable. You have to get on the AI bandwagon. There's no way to avoid it. I thought your analogy um, about uh, accountants before. Yeah, legal, both. Yeah. Legal, accounting. I think it was spot on. Everybody thinks that, you know, there's just going to be this tidal wave of, of people without jobs. What I did uh, think about this week is I listened to um, the picketers in, in Hollywood mm. striking about writing is where that industry is headed and how people are going to be able to order up their own content in the next few years. You're going to be able to essentially 
order a, a, a you know a, a novella if you will you may order a drama and tell the algorithm what you want to see and, and what time frame and who the protagonist is so it's it's freeing up in some levels but on the other you know there's a little bit of a dystopian flavor to it i interviewed uh chris Hemphill. uh i recently. love chris he's a great guy so Chris is a guy that I first met at Smash and Smash has been, it's played an oversized influence in my life in terms of access to folks who I think are futurists and technologists and so forth. Another example is Andy Crestadina, who uh, is somebody that I got to see at Smash. I follow him voraciously. His voraciously. Stuff, voraciously. And his stuff about buttons on websites is like, I swear I dream about it. Like yeah. his whole thing on buttons was, was an, like, it changed my life. It hasn't changed my website, but it changed my life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and it could change your website and it could change your life. I mean, you know, there's a lot of folks that I enjoy following, whether it's, you know, Seth Godin uh, mm-hmm. or other marketers. But there's something about Andy's stuff that is just so practical, so easy to access, and you can deploy it quickly. And that's a that was a gift of Smash. So I love that you have uh, given this audience access to some really innovative thinkers. So essentially, Chris's perspective is that we live in a time that's going to be dictated by these algorithms, but it's up to us to determine how the algorithms behave. And a lot of what Chris does is he speaks to inherent bias in analytics, Mm -hmm. which I think is just fascinating. I had no idea that even existed. And he talked about underserved communities who didn't have access to hospitals because they're simply not represented in the data set. And, you know, from his perspective, AI is going to help deal with that. So Chris is working with a company called Wobot, and they have created a chatbot, essentially that's AI-driven, and that is accessible to people who may need a shoulder to lean on. They may need uh, someone, something, to help them navigate, you know, these emotional challenges that are such a prevalent uh, issue in our our, uh, life these days, especially with teens or serve communities who may not have access to a therapist. He's doing really innovative work. And the way he explained it to me was twofold. One, AI inherently is a positive as long as we harness it for good. And so at the end of the day, it's really how you use it. It's like anything else. You can use, this is a terrible analogy, but you can, you know, you can use an ax, for example, to cut down a tree and create fuel, and you can use it as a weapon of war. So I heard that analogy recently in a different podcast. I thought, that's really accurate in terms of a mindset and how you how you deploy uh, these tools. So again, I think it's a fascinating time. I think we, you know, the, it's rolling out in front of us. And ultimately, from a marketing perspective, I'm thrilled by it. I have found these tools to be really helpful in terms of my content writing. Like I'll use uh, ChatGPT, for example, to create the foundation of an article, but I have to go back in and humanize it. So yeah. I think, you know, down the road, I, gonna... I want, I'm, I wanted a prompt person. I was, I was like, I, for me, I want a session just on prompting how to prompt, you know, and yeah. the problem is right now you go on YouTube and you're, cause I'm a, you know, I look for speakers everywhere. As you know, 80% of our speakers are not in the industry to your point about Andy great, and Michael Brenner and all of the Chris Hemphills. Um, so we spend a lot of time looking for those special folks. Um, but you go on YouTube right now and they're like, oh, I'm the prompt prompt engineer, you know, but they were selling Bitcoin six months ago. Like, like they're not the prompt engineers, you know, I mean, I, I really, I saw them selling Bitcoin six months ago on YouTube. So that's, again, that's going to be a whole skill set that people are, are not thinking that, you know, are not thinking about, but it only gets smarter by the prompts you give it. And you're, you only get smarter by thinking through needing that strategic brain to say, Oh, I asked something and it didn't really give me exactly what I wanted or close to what I wanted. I can ask it slightly differently and it's going to give me a different iteration. And I think that's a big deal. And I, even in the writer's strike, you know, it can create a novella, it can create a script, it can create a screenplay. And I'm sure given what's uh, some of the movies I've seen in the round that I can just imagine the pitch table, right? Like when it's getting, you're like, how did the duck 
get pitched with the thing and then everyone dies. Like, I don't, I want to be, I, what I want to be is not seeing the movie. I want to be in the pitch meeting. So I, I think, you know, yeah, I guess it'll all get better and closer to human and all that. But I, the, like you, I use it a lot for content and I, I, I don't, what, the great thing is I don't spend three hours doing starting from scratch. I'm going to take a half an hour or 45 minutes and clean it up, but it still has to have my voice or it has to have somebody's voice. And, um, you know, Chatty does the best she can. Like I, I've, you know, I'm learning how to prompt better and I know that I'm getting pretty much as close as I can get through ChatGPT, but I still need to do that work. And I, I think it'll be a while, but I, what they're striking for is to say, if Chatty writes a screenplay and I'm the one that's going in and editing it and editing the screenshots and when the camera has to be here and not here, it's my money. Chatty doesn't get any money. <laughs> that's my money. And that is a very legitimate. And that I think is going to be the bigger part of the argument for a long time is who gets credit for what, when, and how in terms of our productivity and the ability to think, because now when I have the baseline, I can think better about how to say something instead of just putting, getting all those words on a page and then, you know, being so frustrated and tired, I'm just cleaning it up, cleaning it up, you know, now I can really give it some thought. So I, you know, I, I, as you said, is it going to be an ax for, you know, war or is it going to be an ax to cut down a tree? And, um, I think, I think there's a long time, you know, I know initially I thought this was going to happen really, really fast. And the more I've been using it, the more I'm like, "Hmm, it's going to happen over time. And at, because it's going to happen over time, just like the accountant stuff happened over time, people got, it really became part of their DNA of becoming excellent at using it. And the better, the more excellent you were, the more you could do outside of just that one thing, you know? Um, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm me, I'm happy about the genie out of the bottle. I'm good. I'm with you. I'm, I'm absolutely with you. So. Let's talk about sales for a sec. I wanted to touch on this subject because I think it's a, a huge component of Smash. And secondarily, we're heading into Q4 before you know it. And next year is an election year. So I had uh, the good fortune of interviewing Jennifer Dixon for this podcast a few weeks ago. And, and one of the topics that she brought up was this concept of risk versus reward in senior care sales. It's a pressure cooker for those folks. So what, you know, what's on your mind as we race towards this new year, next year is a, an election year, which is going to throw the market into turmoil on a, you know, in a good year. Um, I think without getting political, uh, it's going to be high stakes and it's going to be a distracting, right? It's going to be hard for people to focus. So what, you know, what's the angle uh, for Smash this year in terms of sales, coaching, expertise, and so forth? It's funny you should mention, you know, so as I said, we really started as a marketer show. And within a year or two, you know, the sale SVPs of sales were like, you just have to give us our track. You know, you've got to give us, you got to give us our due and you've got to give us stuff to learn. And one of the difficulties on the sales side in finding, um, in, in developing sessions is that there's no new whiz bangs every year, you know, like in marketing, it's like, Ooh, what's the new whiz bang, you know, this year it's AI, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been CRM or whatever. And, uh, or it was, you know, is social media better than digital average? Like there's always something. And with sales, it's a little different. It's, um, we always are challenged with talking to sales experts, you know, who are, who have their own companies and whatever they do, training development. And they're like, I know what we're going to talk to your people about is being really good listeners and consultative salespeople. And I'm like, no, you're not coming because our people are the most consultative listening salespeople on the planet. And that's not what they have to learn about. There are other things. So this year, what I, what I was going to say, it's interesting. You should bring that up. I think we have more sales sessions than we've ever had before. And a lot of it is about, you know, we've done this before, but it's getting better. Um, first people wouldn't go to sessions that were like, how do sales and marketing work together? They would be empty. I don't, I can't tell you why, cause you knew it was important, but that pipeline interface was not uh, of import. 
that's been getting better. And we have a couple of things on that. We have how to build an in-house training department, um, how to motivate in a different way because you've got a different sales force because everyone either let go of, or people left their employee. Um, we have um, information on um, selling uh, with cultural uh, with a cultural eye. By that I mean, um, I'll give you an example. We have one of our board members, uh, Vivage, has um, I think three skills in uh, Colorado that are in Korean neighborhoods, and so they recognize that one of the differentiators they could do is have Korean food, like just food for this culture, and so you know, and also try and bring in some nursing staff from that culture. And, and, you know, by doing that, they were able to have this idea of, you know, a positive cultural sale, not to say that it's exclusionary in any way, but it is inclusionary. And so I, that's going to be really interesting. Um, we have something on using linked uh, sales navigator, which if for those who use it on LinkedIn, I live on it. Okay. Absolutely. Don't, tell LinkedIn worth twice the money. Um, but for people who work with case managers and, and have referral selling it, you know, it's like the most up-to-date database that you can find. So we, we really tried to pull and extract out bits and pieces in a different way than just overarching, you know, how to sell better. Although we have some of that too, because lead qual is lead qualification is an enormous issue in this industry, partly because they can't post pricing or choose not to post pricing. And so you've got a deluge of leads that really are, you know, aren't great. Right. The salespeople are ordering buses and doing all, you know, like they're doing that same, you know, hair on fire dance that the marketing people are. And so they're not getting to all the leads. What are they leaving on the table? What are they not? They're, you know, they're, I have story after story of, um, going back a year to leads and that that's actually one of the best buckets of leads that people have and they've been leaving them to fallow for, you know, like that's always their the last place they go. And so we're trying to just bring in more and more of that knowledge for, um, you know, people say, Oh, they must know that. And I'm like, you know, it's amazing. I talked to some of the largest companies and they're the smartest people and they're grappling with some of the, what people might consider the simpler problems, but you know what? Oakham's razor isn't always true. You know, the simplest answer isn't always the right answer. So, um, you know, they're grappling with with what so many salespeople are. Oh, and the other thing I was going to mention was diversity. Not just diversity in the sense of DEI, but um, diversity of position. So one of our board members, I can't tell you how much I rely on these guys, gals and guys, um, was saying that they had um, by default ended up with a digital salesperson. They were the person that took in most of the digital leads and followed up. And they were doing an unbelievable job of not closing, but moving the sale, you know, from live to live. And management came down and looked at it or was looking at the numbers and the people. And they were saying, but this person doesn't close. So we're going to fire them. And they fired them. And the, my board person was like, I was devastated because I'd never seen such a great handoff and how it moved the sales, sales, sale forward. So she fought for the next year to get that position in place. And she got it, not the same person, unfortunately, but she's very happy with the person. And a lot of our board has talked about that, that they need a different team. It's not that anyone's a bad seller or a good seller. It's just a different sell to, to different stakeholders. And therefore, they've got to make sure that they have the components of the, of the people who will are able to build trust. And it's not just, you know, a lot of people came into this industry as salespeople were case managers and ex-nurses and, you know, people who were in, it doesn't mean they couldn't sell. They were great listeners and, you know, very empathetic and could, could understand what the client needed, but, you know, there just needs to be a different, a, a, a greater um, a basket of types of sellers that are here. So we have a lot on that this year as well. So sales is like, I, I was just looking on the board the other day. I was like, Ooh, this is like the sales show year. <laughs> great. Great. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm always excited for Smash, but the sales and marketing aspect of it in conjunction, I think, is the value add from my perspective. And especially after talking to Jennifer, she mentioned. That I love Jennifer. She's great. 
terrifically talented lady. Well, Billy, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. I know you're very much in demand. You've got a lot of plates in the air that you're juggling. I'm excited to see you in Las Vegas at the JW Marriott for Smash 2023, taking place October 16th to 18th. I know you're completely sold out and there's a waiting list. So again, congratulations on taking what was a, you know, a small kernel and a spark of imagination all the way into the must attend conference for senior living sales and marketing professionals. Excited to see you and appreciate all the insights. You are a terrific interview. Thank you. Well, I have one question though for you, Adam, before we oh, leave. Please. What is your outfit for Twinkle Tuesday? Um, I'm not or have you share. not decided? Oh, oh, I've got some options that I'm weighing. Okay, um, just want to say, because Twinkle about. Tuesday, we're in our 10th year anniversary, Twinkle and Twinkle Tuesday, Tuesday is going to be off the charts. That's all I'm saying. Let's just say mine is going to be battery operated. We'll leave it at that. Bully grip. Fine. That's all we need to know. Thanks, Adam. Thank you so much for asking. Thank you. My pleasure. Really terrific having you. And being here. Thanks so much. Take good care. This episode of the Canopy IQ podcast is presented by Canopy Adco. There's no substitute for efficiency, and that's why Canopy offers programmatic advertising, hyper-targeting your potential customers, and supporting your advertising goals. Make every media dollar count. Discover the Canopy Advantage. Ask us how Canopy Adco's programmatic advertising could benefit you. 